0: Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm joined on the podcast today by Prudence Pfeiffer, author of the new book, The Slip, The New York City Street That Changed American Art Forever. Prudence is an art historian, writer, and editor, and she is director of content at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, New York Review of Books, Art Forum, Book Forum, and many others. Author Kate Bolick wrote about the book, Reading the slip provides a thrill similar to stumbling on hidden treasure in an antique shop. Elegantly wrought and bristling with unforgettable details, this inspired excavation of a never-before-told chapter in the history of American art is as timeless as it is original. From the serendipity of friendship to the mysterious power of place, Prudence Peiffer brings to vivid life the abstract forces that make it possible for creativity to thrive. Prudence, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Jeff.
0: Absolutely. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard ab- heard about your book, can you tell us about the slip and why you write that it changed American art?
1: Sure. Just jumping right in with a big question. <laughs> sure. Let me see about I, how I can do that pithily. Um So, yes, uh, Coentis Slip. So the slip is sort of the shorthand uh, way that I call Coventi's Slip, which is a Dutch name for what was once a waterway um, in the very, very early days of New York um, in the 17th century and becomes by the 20th century uh, mostly filled in a street. And it's here that a very unlikely group of artists Come together um, to live in these illegal uh, sailmaking and maritime warehouses that dot the slit that are you know a part of that road and part of that street, and they um, they're really working in very different uh, modes. They're making abstract paintings and very representative paintings. They're working in fiber arts. They're working um, in film projects. They're um, really doing all they're making assemblages and sculptor sculptures. So it's it's not um, a group that you would expect to kind of be come together. And um, but many of them would go on to become, you know, very well known names in the history of art and American art. Um, And they all were really influenced by this the incredible history of the street where they lived. And also by each other in ways that are sometimes, I think, very quiet and also very profound. Um, and I suppose I should say who the artists are. Sure. Um, sure. Just to I, so um the the artists that my book particularly looks at are um, Ellsworth Kelly, Robert Indiana, Agnes Martin, James Rosenquist, Delphine Serre, Lenore Tawney, and Jack Youngerman. So you know, probably some of those names might spark a little. Oh, yeah. Um And others, maybe less so. Um, but really, all together, they created this community. I mean, they were not there was not a movement. They were not sort of writing a manifesto. And they were living, you know, fairly separately, but there were lots of moments of of interaction and influence and borrowing materials and showers and, you know, very kind of everyday um everyday things and And that was a part of the story that. I was really excited to tell as well.
0: Well, for those of us who are familiar with New York City, can you tell us exactly where the slip is in terms of the, I'm assuming it's the Lower East Side?
1: Yeah, um, exactly. So, I, yeah, something that I did not realize until I started to uh, research this book is that there were actually 12 slips, so 12 of these waterways that kind of cut into the um, very thin downtown um, kind of peninsula of Manhattan. Interesting. Um, In from the very earliest days of the colony. So, you know, this is early 17th century that these begin to be made. And obviously, this is a moment when the water was the kind of main way that goods and people and, you know, everything came to the city. So, um, and so one of these was Coente's Lip. And it actually was uh, one of the slips that cut sort of the farthest in to the more sort of central um, uh, area of, of downtown Manhattan. But it's all, they all were really clustered in what we now think of as kind of the South Street Seaport um, uh, neighborhood, sort of up to the Brooklyn Bridge, if that kind of gives you a, a kind of visual sure. on the east side, so on the East River. right? Um, yeah.
0: How did you decide to research and write the slip?
1: Well, I um, I had I was you know trained I'd been trained as an art historian and I had sort of heard mention of it in you know in passing in various moments and I when I first started working on this project I you know was working at the magazine Art Forum and we were doing a putting together a tribute for Elvis Kelly who had just died and we asked you know the artist Robert Indiana to submit something. Um, and he submitted this photo from their time together living at Coenties Slip, them riding bikes around that neighborhood um, and in Wall Street. And I just kind of sparked something in me to to want to know more about what that time was about and how these very different and yet you know really compellingly interesting um, similar artists ended up living together um, in this very short moment too, of really less than a decade. And then, you know, I started to hear a little bit more about it, but I couldn't find any sort of more comprehensive history of what, what the place had been, you know, what that street had been before and what kind of happened to it um, after or, you know, why the artists, why we don't know about it more um, in terms of the artists' stories. And so I, you know, I... Maybe you know, against my better judgment in terms of everything else going on in my life, but I um, <laughs> I had a really wonderful agent who really encouraged me to um, to write this book, and I um, and so then I just started to to look into researching more about it and finding out who I could talk to who was still alive, um, and that led me to uh, meeting Jack Youngerman who is a kind of one of the central artists and, you know, figures in in the story and who was just such a generous um, interlocutor, just the most humble and modest and fascinating artist. And um, so we sort of started a multi-year conversation um, that also just opened so many doors of inquiry and understanding and, you know, just sort of new material that had never been shared before, around around this place um, and this, you know, really incredible chapter, not just in art history, but also in the kind of history of New York City. Sure. And so that, you know, that for me was, was very exciting. And frankly, as, you know, I, I work at MoMA and I am trained as an art historian and it's, you know, wonderful. I, obviously, I really love art and I love art history, but it was really exciting for me to also get to dig into very non-art historical related stories around, <laughs> right. you know, the canal voting community that lived there, um, that lived on this slip for a while in the late 19th and early 20th century and Seaman's church Institute, this really incredible place for, um, this kind of home away from home for sailors that was at the end of the slip or, you know, all of the kind of crazy stories of, of New York as a place that, um, and this street in terms of its, you know, really long maritime history that, um, became a part of what the artists were interested in, but was also just a totally, you know, separate kind of more historical, uh, portrait of what the city was and, and what it became.
0: Do you think that you would have been able to write this book if you had not developed that relationship and gotten that insight from, I think, was it Youngerman that you said? Yeah. Yeah.
1: It was Jack Youngerman. I mean, I don't, I don't know. You know, I think it was so, um, he was just so generous with his time and he was so, he had such an incredible memory for that period. And, um, and then, you know, through him, I also met his son, Duncan, who in this, the famous Hans Namath photo, which is the cover of the book, which is, you know, many of the artists, not all, but many of them on the roof of one of these buildings on Quinti slip in 1958. Um, And there's a little boy and that's Duncan Youngerman, who is the son of, um, Jack Youngerman and the French actor Delphine Serig, who also, you know, lived on the slip. And, and they, I mean, I think there were just, yeah, there was so much sort of material from those conversations and his archives that it would certainly not be, I think, as compelling a story without his voice and, um, yeah, and, and sure. so many of his anecdotes. Well,
0: was there anything that you discovered while writing the slip that surprised you, either about the artists or the slip, or the neighborhood that you didn't know about before you started researching?
1: Yes. I mean, in some ways, so like there was very little that wasn't sort of constantly surprising <laughs> yes. me. Yes. I think, you know, I mean, I, I am a total nerd and I love, you know, I, I find many things really fascinating. And I think when you're deep in a project, everything sort of feels serendipitously connected in a way where you have to kind of take a step back and make sure it really is there, you know, that connection or that interesting thing. But I think, I guess one of the things that was fascinating to me is I never, you know, starting out writing this book, I never thought that I would be researching the, you know, 1964 World's Fair to, you know, (laughs) to write it. Or, you know, really um, returning to Robert Caro's Power Broker and thinking about Robert Moses and, you know, rereading Jane Jacobs and and kind of all of the um, amazing figures of New York that actually play a fairly central role in in aspects of um, the time period when the artists were on the slip and the work that they were doing. So many of the artists, three of the artists made projects for the 64 World's Fair. They were commissioned by Philip Johnson and that was this kind of fascinating tension because um there you know this was sort of one of the moments where they were had the most public viewing of their artwork on the outside of the pavilion the New York State pavilion at the fair but it was also you know at the behest of the director of the fair Robert Moses who also was at the same time creating all these policies that were developing rapidly developing the neighborhood where they lived so that you know and and encroaching on the buildings that they were living in and, you know, all but one of which were actually demolished even in the period when the artists were there. So it wasn't even like, oh, and then 10 years later, the buildings were gone. It was, you know, actively uh, Robert Indiana had to move. And luckily, he, he was able to stay on the slip. But very early on, his building was razed to the ground and he moved to another building on the slip um, and then was eventually evicted in 65 when that building was um, going to be uh Raised as well, demolished as well. So I think, you know, some of the kind of stories around um, the political and the kind of world cultural stories around New York at the time, just the, the kind of unexpected intersections of these artists, I think, was really a wonderful surprise. And then just like little, I think there were lots of like little moments that, um, and discoveries, two of which, uh, you know, two of which I would say were almost, I, I didn't know very much at all about the artist Lenore Tawny, and she was really a revelation to me, not only because her work is so incredible, and she really was this trailblazing artist for fiber arts for working in textiles and she moved to the slip very late, or you know she's one of the the um older artists she she moved when she was fifty, but she sort of jokingly said she would could pass for younger so um she had a very useful face and and ha and she you know she really um she came from Chicago. And she created this kind of these kind of incredible spaces there in two different studios, um, one uh, at 27 Cointy Slip and then one she moved to the um, to South Street just right sort of at the end of Cointy Slip and she um, would have these kind of salons and and you know Anais Nin the writer came there and um, just there were so many interesting people that kind of passed through Um, this very obscure place. And I think that the the kind of contradiction in a way that it was this place that all the artists talked about how they were leaving Manhattan to go home, even though as we know, it was, you know, uh, it was very much um, a part of Manhattan, but because it was so quiet um, after sort of 5 p.m. when the financial district was shut down and people had sort of moved out to the suburbs and it was, you know, dark, there were barely any streetlights and There was just this kind of sailing sailor community um, who were staying at the Siemens Church Institute and um, and then the artists. And I think so it was this, you know, people didn't know about it. It was just sort of this totally unknown place. And yet so many really interesting cultural thinkers and and writers and and poets and artists did end up kind of visiting the artists there and. and passing through there or you know just sort of crazy New York moments like the you know the magician Harry Houdini leaving off of Coenties Slip for one of his like famous uh getting out of a box when put right. into the water <laughs> stunts you know so there's just it's, again there's just all these kind of really interesting lots of connections lots of connections and lots of moments of of just you know realizing i mean the city is such a palimpsest of different moments and different times and um, and to me you know because these artists were really interested they were they were so poor that they were actually picking up the materials from the street from the demolition to use in their artwork and so the place of the slip was literally becoming a part of their yeah. art but also the kind of sensibility of you know this this place that was, not quite land, not quite sea, you know, not quite just had this kind of contingency spirit to it, even um, in terms of the communities that had lived there very temporarily. And all of that sort of, you know, became a part of their artwork as well. And so I think that you know even even these like little little seemingly esoteric moments of of history began to be connected for me in terms of how, these artists were thinking about where they were living and what they were making there um, and, and the kind of model for working that, that it, to me, you know, kind of came about through this very unusual community.
2: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. for overeating, and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at noom.com. That's noo dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
0: Well... You you have described the, the slip and how in the 50s and 60s it offered a space for these artists to grow and thrive. Do you think that's still possible in New York City today?
1: Ah, oh, it's a very good question. <laughs> and it's a very tough question. And I try, I'm, you know, I'm trying so hard not to sound, um, you know, I really didn't want the book to be nostalgic because I sure. think, you know, one of the things isn't even, you know, talking with um Youngerman about his time there. He said, "Oh, you know, today the pictures look so beautiful, uh, you know, but we we were so poor and we had no money and we couldn't, you know, afford anything, and that's why it looks like these beautiful minimalist spaces, <laughs> um, you know, and and of course they were just hanging their artwork on the wall, and so it's like his gorgeous paintings, and then you know a a Sears Roebuck picnic table. So, um, so I do, you know, I think that 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 is important to kind of um keep in in mind. I mean, I think for me one of the things that i was trying to think about is you know does this offer a different model for not only how we might think about you know making a space for creativity in any moment so you know in a contemporary moment or you know a future moment but also for rethinking even how we've thought about sort of history in the past i mean that sounds maybe too grand to say like i don't i'm not trying to like re rethink all of history but just that there are these um You know, this isn't a a grand narrative about huge breakthroughs and, and kind of, you know, I mean, there were some really fascinating breakthroughs then. But I think it's more about looking at the quiet generosity of these, you know, moments where people were really, you know, helping each other out in these very, in some ways, mundane ways of like, you know, I can help you pay your electric bill this month or I have a shower. You don't, or you know, or let me introduce you to my gallerist. Um, or you know, here's how to stretch a canvas. Or you know, I'm doing this thing, and so you know, you were starting to do something like that, and now you're pivoting to do something different. And and I think you know this way in which they were all all very connected by this place, but also really working very independently, which is something I talk about in terms of this concept of collective solitude that I use in the book and and that to me is something I'm very interested to to hope is is something we can carry forward today as you know that there's a there is a space for you know people to um to feel like they have a community but also feel like there is some independence I I think it's um you know, it was a very particular moment in New York when they were able to, you know, have a waterfront view, (laughs) um, you know, for $35 a month. And there is that kind of amazing, um, you know, Indiana sort of jokes at the end of his life, like, you know, what would it take to bring you back to New York? And he says, like, a a loft with a, you know, water view for $35 a month, which is what he (laughs) had in, you know, in the 60s when he lived there. But, I also you know it's an interesting moment in New York too in terms of com- other sort of commercial real estate um, vacancies and um, and just wondering you know about kind of the use of of buildings and right. um, moments and I think you know there's a there's always a kind of recurring um, story around you know kind of I think in New York too, that, oh, just 10 years ago was like the the height of some, you know, creative moment and it's gone and New York is dead. And I think, I think that's not true. I mean, I think that New York, there's, there's so many, I mean, I know of so many artists who are, um, are, are still doing really interesting things and making, you know, creating a, a gallery in a, uh, a uh, shipping container, you know, in between, you know, in a, in a, in a little space of, um, you know, turf between like two crazy high rises in downtown Brooklyn. So, you know, I think there's, you'll always have a kind of ingenuity and a way of, you know, thinking creatively through things. And you'll always have a kind of sense, I think, of wanting to come to places where there is, you know, not just museums and culture and other artists working, but also frankly, the, um, the cultural, the, the money, the means to collect and support um, and I think that's one of the kind of tensions too, that was fascinating to me in this book, the kind of this tension between creativity and capitalism, frankly, sure. of, of like, you know, um, <laughs> how, and it's one, you know, that is, that is just, it's, it's so central to, to so many conversations around, um, art today and to, to kind of, you know, how you can, um, Live afford to live in a place like New York City, let alone have space to then also create you know no, no matter what you're making um, and I do think that that is a huge challenge today for for many, many artists, and there's much less space um, that allow that allows for that sure well, to shift gears for a moment,
0: are there current artists or movements that you're particularly excited about?
1: Oh, um. I, I mean, I think that I am, yes, I mean, I am, there, it's, I'm so excited about, you know, so much stuff out there. I mean, I think that I, I guess in the spirit of, um, of even some of like ethos around my book, I mean, I'm really interested in, um, in how I think there's less and less maybe an, a need to have like very strict definitions between kinds of art. So you see, mm-hmm. A lot more artists who are, you know, write have a writing practice, and then they also are, um, you know, making paintings. But then they're also going to do a performance, and um, and I think that's you know really exciting to kind of feel like there's a lot of cross pollination between different um, zones, kind of sure as it as it were. And it's funny, you know, I wrote my dissertation on. Um, way back in the day, on Ed Reinhardt, who famously, you know, for the last ten years of his life, only made black monochrome paintings. And I'm kind sort of saying that in quotations here because they, you know, were not in fact monochromes. There were lots of different colors and shapes, uh, cruciform shapes that were in the paintings. And if you looked long enough, you would see them. But, um, but what I I wrote also about the fact that he was, you know, a prolific writer and a critic, and he also made cartoons, and he also took all of these photographs. And, you know, at the time, and I think much more, you know, now we're seeing, we're kind of bringing in these peripheral projects and these sort of minor histories of artists into how we talk about art history writ large. But at the time, you know, he really was just known as a painter. And um, and I think it's really interesting to, to look at all of the kind of works that an artist is doing and to, you know, maybe see if there's some really strong kind of connection or model across, you know, across across that. And um, and so that that remains a real interest for me, I think, when I am, you know, going to, to see art. I will say, I mean, thank God that I work at MoMA because I at least, I, I get to <laughs> see so much incredible art just, get, sure. you know, literally on my walk to my office every morning. But I will say that I um have not gotten out like i'm not the person to tell you like the hot new artist right now because <laughs> i have spent the last seven years you know having and raising three children and trying to write this book um in the you know few hours between family and full-time jobs so i have not been on the scene in um quite the same way that you know where i was seeing so much art um previous to that so
0: that that's completely understandable yeah well, well, kind of, kind of. On that note, are there nonfiction books or novels that you've read recently that you enjoyed, or do you not have time?
1: <laughs> I, you know, it's so interesting. I, um, I have to read in order to write well. Like, I have to be reading um, books all the time. And so, even though my life is a little bit insane, <laughs> or maybe hopefully is starting to calm down, but um, in terms of just not having a lot of time um, since I, yes, I have, well, my oldest just turned six. I have six, three, and one. Um, but in terms of my kids, but, um, so yeah, so I've read a lot of stuff and it's actually, um, something, you know, that I think about a lot and even think it's a a theme that comes up a lot on your podcast too, is just like this, this, it's really great and inspiring to read, really broadly. And I think, you know, I loved that for my book, I had to be, you know, I was reading sort of zoning reports and I was, um, you know, reading Walt Whitman and not just his poetry, but also his early essays and the Whig Review. And I was, you know, just, you know, reading old um, copies of the journal that the um, Siemens Church Institute put out for sailors. And so it was just the range of kind of reading that I was doing for the book was really um, fascinating. But I also there's a um, a great uh, essay in the Paris Review or interview in the Paris Review with the amazing writer Lucy Sante who was very influential to this book um, for their work on the Bowery and um, in it you know Sante talks about how sometimes what actually informs your writing the most is something totally off the subject of it. But it's somehow something about either how it was put together or the structure of it or just there's something that might inspire you. And I really found that to be the case. So I I do always try to be, you know, writing, uh, reading very disparate things. Um, and I'm trying to think of, well, I, um, I'm i actually currently reading this book, The Art Thief, um, uh, which is really fantastic. It's a nonfiction book about um, the most successful, I think one of the most successful art thieves of all time, who in the nineties was just um quietly and in his twenties was just quietly like lifting millions and millions of dollars worth of art from smaller um museums and collections around Europe. Um and that's been a really fun and, and compelling read. I'm not finished with that yet, but um and I um but then I read a lot of, and I also just read Mark Broad's um, Kiki Man Ray about Kiki um, Mom Pernas, which was really fantastic. Um, and that, that was a really fun nonfiction Book um, and then uh, and a, a really great experimental book called The Long Cut, experimental novel by one of my colleagues, Emily Hall, who's you know secretly this brilliant writer as well. <laughs> so <laughs> that was and then I just finished you know Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver, which sure. I think um, and I'm really excited. My next book on my book stand is Emma Klein's The Guest, which I think seems like everyone is reading this summer. So. Um, I, yeah, I'm kind of constantly, I'm constantly reading and I'm pretty voracious about, you know, I I love novels, but I kind of read, read a little bit of everything. And of course, a lot of picture books. There's a lot, (laughs) there's a lot of Richard Scarry (laughs) going on in my house as well.
0: I'm familiar with those. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your book, The Slip?
1: Um, well, I do have a website, which is my name, so prudencepiper.com. There's also um, a, a website, which, I mean, these are all sort of like hard spellings, but coentieslip.com, so C-O-E-N-T-I-E-S-S-L-I-P.com, and that has a little bit more about um, the book and um, some upcoming events and and just where you can find it. Um, and. I am, I am on Twitter, although who knows, I guess, you know, it it, it, will Twitter be here next week, unclear. So, or it will be now called X or something. So, (laughs) Um, but yeah.
0: Well, again, we've been speaking to Prudence Pfeiffer, author of The Slip, The New York City Street That Changed American Art Forever. The book is available now. So go buy a copy and Prudence, thanks for doing this interview.
1: Thank you so
3: much, Jeff. It's really been a pleasure. Yes, it's been wonderful. They gather on the roof of 3-5 Coentis Slip at the southern tip of Manhattan, enjoying coffee and cigarettes one brisk gray early March morning in 1958. The artists fall naturally into the triangular composition of a grand 19th-century painting, as if on the prow of a ship. At the far left, Delphine Seyrig perches atop the ruins of several Adirondack chairs. Clustered in the center, Robert Clark, who was just reinventing himself as Robert Indiana, squats in a black beret next to Duncan Youngerman, one and a half years old, and dressed in cuffed jeans, a mini version of his father, Jack, who sits on the sloped roof with his rescue dog, Orange, the unofficial mascot of the slip. Ellsworth Kelly stands just behind near the open door to the stairs, forming the peak of the triangle. And Agnes Martin is off to the far right, sitting above everyone on a tar paper roof peak, her hand pocketed in her khaki trench coat a contrast to the dark clothes everyone else is wearing. As always, she's in sensible shoes. Not pictured, but a core part of this story are the artists Lenore Tawney, already living at the Slib, and James Rosenquist, who would arrive several years later. The same day this picture was taken, its photographer, Hans Namath, who was on assignment to shoot Kelly as part of a photo essay about American artists participating in the 1958 Brussels World's Fair, also photographed the artists having a simple lunch in Kelly's apartment, Youngerman's Attic Loft Studio, and Kelly, Indiana, and Martin riding bikes around lower Manhattan's narrow lanes. Ironically, Tawny, though not part of this shoot, was the other artist on the slip who was exhibiting her work in Brussels in the American Artists and Craftsmen exhibition at the American Pavilion. Some eight years earlier, Namath had helped launch the mythic reception of abstract expressionism, photographing and filming Jackson Pollock's balletic paint-flinging at Pollock and Lee Krasner's studio home on the east end of Long Island, also just a stone's throw from the water. Now he was photographing the group at Coenties for the next chapter of American art. Today, though, the slip shows up more readily as a footnote in that history, with this photograph as its best-known document. Modern Western art history has traditionally been understood and categorized through a progression of influential movements and the artists who reacted against them or in productive friction with them to form, in turn, new movements. In its most simplified version, the post-war American story reads something like this. In the decades following World War II in the United States, Abstract expressionism's embodied gestures and defiant abstract mark-making, which had rested the center of the art world from Paris to New York, give way to Pop's brazen cultural and consumer references, the protest and experimentation of happenings, performance, and dance, and the pared-down repetition and austerity of minimalism. This cycle allows for some connective outliers. Add Reinhardt's reticent black squares. Robert Rauschenberg's Big Combines Hanging with Real Things, but its forward motion is defined by movements in the form of isms, composed of and defined by men. If you were to stumble on Namath's roof photo without knowing about this short-lived community in New York in the 1950s and 60s, you might be surprised to see such different artists together in a single image. Each would go on to have a crucial impact, whether seismic or subtle, on 20th century art, even if their work was often difficult to fit into any one movement and its reach not always equal. Sayrig would star in the quintessential Beat Generation film in New York, though not a part of that crowd, and then become one of the most acclaimed actresses and feminist activists in France over the next three decades. Just a few years later, Indiana's iconic stacked love sculpture would become so ubiquitous as to set off decades of litigation. Kelly would be hailed as a giant of American abstract painting, Youngerman would show at the Museum of Modern Art a year after this photo was taken, and Martin's pure, abstract canvases would be among the most transcendent and hallmark work of the post-war period. And as for those not present, Tawny would bring textile and fabric art into the hallowed realms of painting and sculpture. And Rosenquist would take his background as a commercial sign painter to make mural-scale mashups of American culture, whose surfaces bounced light and interpretation off of them as much as their Abex forebears absorbed it. You know how to book flights and hotels.